Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. If your style of gardening is all about keeping things simple, making the most of every single bit of space and plant you have, all while striving to be as sustainable as you possibly can, then you're going to love today's podcast guest. Hello, I'm Lucy. Welcome to this episode. This time we're chatting to Frances Tophill, gardener, author, environmentalist and Garden as Well presenter, all about the modern ways she likes to garden. Frances is a big believer that we need to rethink the way we see our gardens, encouraging all of us to consider them as an essential part of the ecosystem, as well as a place of beauty, productivity and respite. Here, we cover everything from hedgeray recipes and living seasonally, to edible houseplants, agroforestry and landscaping with wildlife in mind. But we'll kick off with Frances sharing simple changes to make tomorrow to be that one step closer to becoming a sustainable gardener. Simple change. There are so many. Actually, the really nice thing about this is that a lot of the changes that we all need to make are very simple. And yet when you put them all together, they make a really big difference. So one of the nicest things you can do is start creating habitat in your garden for creatures and also passage through your garden for creatures. So cutting little holes in the fences for hedgehogs and foxes to be able to walk safely through rather than walking on the roads, which unfortunately ends in a lot of them getting hit by cars. Um, Also little ponds, even small ones, bit of water for animals to drink from, but also for amphibians to live in and for lots of insects to have part of their life cycle under the water. That's crucial. Um, Insect habitat like piles of twigs and stones and bits of like mucky old corners that you never go into just let them be Um, and then the lovely thing is just having as many different flowering plants as you can in the garden is really really helpful to loads of different species as as much as you can brings in all the different species Um, so a little bit for everyone Um, and then in terms of being sustainable ourselves and how we grow I think a lot of it is down to just making sure that the people that we're buying our gardening things from know that we care about where they've come from. I always kind of get really surprised that when we buy food, we see exactly where it comes from on the label, what farm it's come from, what country it's come from, so we can make those educated choices about what we buy. And when we buy plants and compost, um, we have no idea. And so I think it's just that kind of asking people questions. Where's this come from? You know, how's it been grown? Have you used chemicals to grow this? You know, is it in peat-free compost? Um, And then it just makes people realise that as consumers we care. And then obviously as consumers, we're powerful. So if we want to buy things that are grown kind of locally, then we tell people that and then they'll realise that they need to stock things that are grown locally. So it's all those little changes. That's it. I think we've all been just conditioned, haven't we, you know, in the garden centre or in the supermarket, just to pick up what's there, compost or or bulbs or whatever it is, and not actually think of the provenance. But, you know, it seems like there really is a bit of a wave and a change now of people questioning and and wanting to really sort of stop and think about, well, hold on, you know, where, you know, which country even has have have these seeds come from? Um, And, you know, talking about food and, and providing for us. So when we think of our gardens providing for us, we immediately think, of food and bountiful harvest um, but you're a big advocate for gardens providing produce for our hobbies as well and our makes um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how you use plants for everything from clothes dyes to cosmetics 
Of course. I think it's really, I just think it's really fun, actually. I think I think there's a lot of talk about people reconnecting with nature. We've all become really disconnected. And I think a lot of us had a bit of an eye-opener in the lockdown, especially because it was such a nice hot year, <laughs> that um, we, we've, we first time we had our outside time rationed. Like, when has that ever happened? Only allowed to be outside for an hour a day. And for those people who didn't have gardens, that was a huge, huge thing. And for those of us who did have gardens, we really appreciate that mine was only tiny, but oh my God, it was just like a lifeline. Um, And I think as we began to unlock and we were kind of go exploring, I know I wasn't working for a lot of it, like many people who work in TV, I hadn't realised I'd stopped gardening. I hadn't, I'd sort of dropped a lot of gardening clients. I usually work in community gardens and charities. I hadn't done that for a couple of years because I was so busy with TV and then all TV stopped. So I was like many people who had absolutely no work for the whole summer really. Um, And it was amazing to actually go and explore the area around me and reconnect with that with nature in that way and I think a lot of people have got a hangover of that of of wanting to sort of feel a part of nature so I I hope that it's quite a simple thing for people to do and just to make it fun make it engaging but also include nature in our everyday life so that's where the whole like cosmetics thing comes in because it's like you know you can grow veg that you can eat and obviously it's delicious and great but if you can also grow um, some herbs and often they're weeds things like chickweed really really good for your skin it's amazing for sores and rashes and stuff like that but we usually just pull it up and throw it away or put it on the compost seat but actually if you use the chickweed stick it in some oil overnight on a warm kind of radiator or somewhere in the air and cupboard or something where it'll be a bit warm 24 hours and then it's infused with all that goodness you just use that oil you can just use that oil straight if you want to on your skin or mix it with some beeswax or if you're vegan some um, plant-based wax melt it all up add some essential oil to make it smell nice and that's lip balm or or skin oil you know it's it's really simple and that you know obviously you can do the same with lavender you can do it with um calendula there's loads of different plants you can you can do that with and it's just a bit more fun always than just trying to grow things to eat like it you know if you can also give christmas presents or birthday presents to people from things you've made that you've grown yourself and it that all feeds into that sustainability you know you're not you know reuse your old kind of tubes of cosmetics and your and your lip balm cases fill them with homemade lip balm that's homegrown like what could be more sustainable than that oh there's nothing better as well isn't there you cut this such as uh, you know when you have a you've grown something from seed you've harvested it I, already at that point i feel like a huge level of satisfaction so if i can then take that next level now and bring it into my beauty cabinet and into you know that like we're talking about the clothes and, and, and the way it's you know changed the way you shop you know I, it's it is such a, a lovely thing to do isn't it yeah massively and then also you know where everything's come from you know what's gone into it you know you know that there's not loads of chemicals in it it's all kind of organic or even if it's not organic it's just all locally grown natural stuff you know that's it and and, you know you almost then you don't need to check the label for the ingredients because you've made it and you know what's in it so you know unless you're like me and you just like throw a a random stuff in it sometimes (laughs) I'm really with this book it was so funny trying to write the recipes and it was like how much do I put in of this and I was was finally trying to measure everything normally I'm just like yeah Yeah, bit of wax or a bit of oil (laughs) a nice big bunch of this that's how I cook throw it all in the pot you know the more the better some batches just don't work at all you're like well I'll write that one off (laughs) 
this I had to really that's how you find yeah (laughs) great new things to do isn't it it's all about experimenting um Right, so in this modern school of thought you speak about in your book, The Modern Gardener, um, exploring how we can all treat our little patches of earth as, like we said, a larder, a beauty shop, an apothecary, um, all all connected to nature and the community. So what is it that makes a successful patch of productive wilderness? I mean, there are varying things that people people would put in terms of importance. I would argue one of the most important things is if people are using it and enjoying it. And also if wildlife is using it and enjoying it, I would say that's kind of the most important thing. How it looks is less important. I suppose in a productive patch, there is also an element of it having some kind of productivity, Um, but it can be quite hands-off. So things like um, forest gardening and agroforestry, which involve shrubs and trees, and then climbers climbing up those trees, and then ground cover plants um, beneath the trees all of them have some kind of function. So you might have an apple tree or a plum tree or an apricot tree if you're somewhere quite mild or something um, with maybe a kiwi fruit growing up it. I was at Heligan Garden yesterday and saw um, a huge conifer. I think it was a cryptomeria. It must have been 80 feet tall with a kiwi that was growing nearly to the top of it. And they said they got 30 kilos of kiwis that year from that climber. So so you will still get fruit even climbing up a tree. Um, and then you might and using have, every bit of space as well. Exactly. And then you might have things like red currants or black currants or gooseberries as the shrubs underneath it. Um, even things like bramble, if you can't grow anything else, then some blackberries will grow anywhere, as we all know. Um, and you get a lovely harvest from them. Um, but then on the ground cover, you can grow normal vegetables, probably ones that are a little more shade tolerant. So things that are green are generally a bit better than things that are kind of purple or red. Um, but yeah, there's there's a huge scope to to fill a space with productivity at, at every level. And it could end up looking like a forest if you do it that way, for example. But it's however you're going to get the most enjoyment from it and the community and people around you are going to get the most enjoyment from it. And, you know, talking about those kiwis and the amounts that, you know, they, they were able to harvest. And you've said that this style and way of thinking of our gardens has actually completely changed the way you shop. So, you know, what would you absolutely never dream of going out and buying in the shops now? Because you absolutely would, you know, want to grow that yourself. Um, I think things like rocket, especially because... I don't know anywhere apart from maybe a farm shop where you'd buy rocket that's not in a plastic bag. I mean, pre-cut rocket is so easy to grow. And even when it's gone to flower, um, you can still eat it. It's just a lot more bitter. But the, the nice thing is like we've uh, we've um, trained ourselves off bitter flavours often. We kind of don't eat them lots of things like chicory and stuff. We tend not to eat them hugely, but they're so good for us for like detoxifying our bodies. So in the spring, which is when bitter things like chicory and rocket are really at their best and some of the only things that are available to harvest still um that's exactly when we need to detoxify from the winter of like stocking up on all of the rubbish that we eat to keep our body fat levels up so we keep warm um and so your your kidney and your liver gets detoxified by these bitter things so but i would ne- i would never buy rocket now i always would grow it um also things like coriander it's so easy to grow. Um, I think a lot of that like little leaf stuff that you're going to always be buying in plastic, there's no point in buying that because you can grow it on a tiny scale. Even if you just had a window box or something, um, you can easily sow coriander and it will, you know, germinate really quickly. Even in colder weather, coriander will germinate. Um, 
and it's just really handy. So I think things like that would be top of my list of things I'd hope not to ever have to buy again. That's it. And, and you'd be surprised, wouldn't you, kind of the amount of times actually you do go to the shop and buy, you know, oh, I'm buying coriander again. It is silly, isn't it? Because if you've got that plant and you're looking after it, you know, like you say, mi- minimal fuss really to keep something like that going and, and, and the space element of it really. You can do it anywhere. Um, so, and you know, I, I loved all of the recipes in the book um, and transforming flowers and herbs into delicious drinks. And we t- spoke about the natural remedies and the soothing balm that you make. Um, so what are you looking forward to harvesting in the next few weeks um the most and and how are you going to use it Mm. well um i have got loads of rhubarb all coming through i was going to go really easy on my rhubarb this year because last year i picked so much of it (laughs) but it's come back so healthily i'm just like well and maybe i maybe i should pick a bit so i've done two little harvests so far but i'm hoping to get a bit more um i've got loads of herbs that have overwintered and now they're flowering so things i've got like um chervil and caraway which are now flowering and you can eat the seeds of those as well um I've got lots of little fennel and stuff growing up. Um, I've got I've, I've got really into perennial vegetables, which there's a whole section about in the book, um, and I find them amazing because not like now is probably when you'd be thinking it's the hungry gap. So we've got the kind of all the kales, all the brassicas, the purple sprouting broccoli is all just gone over, and that's really the last. All the leeks as well. It's kind of the last of the of the winter leftover veg so we got the beginnings of the salads the rockets the corianders coming up now but um all the big summer veg like beetroot sweet corn courgettes cucumbers tomatoes they're still way off so um this is a traditionally sort of thought of as the hungry gap but with perennial veg you don't really get a hungry gap especially things like perennial kale i've got so many kale leaves on my allotment that i could harvest it nearly every day and always have more so that's something I'm really excited about and I'm growing more and more of them. Um, things like Skirret, I've got Good King Henry, I've got Herblitzia, I've got some um, Apios Americana, which is actually in the house because it's a bit tender, um, but it will go out into the garden uh, as soon as it's big enough to harden off. Um, so that's what I'm really looking forward to this year is all the kind of like perennial stuff because you get harvest pretty much all year. <laughs> Now, when you are um, planting and, 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 and sowing seeds and, and thinking about the calendar, are you now sort of starting to think about the recipes and, and how you might cook with them, uh, you know, to share to share with us going forward? <laughs> I'm quite um, a spontaneous person, so not really. But what I do know is like there are certain things that I would never not grow. Like when you're saying you know, there are things I would ever not buy now, but I know there are things I would never not grow. And one of them is things like squashes, just because when it comes to recipes, they're so easy easy I just like I mean I've still got squashes in the kitchen that I grew last year and have stored all winter perfectly well so how do you store them I just keep them in the kitchen <laughs> and, and they're they I mean, they suppose they do when you think about you know especially kind of at the end of the year when you have them out and they do they last a long time they don't last they for ages if you cut them then they immediately start to to go um and sometimes if you leave them too long they can sort of get a bit of a soggy bottom and then begin to rot from the bottom like a pumpkin pumpkins maybe don't store quite I mean they do store really well but maybe not quite as well as some squashes but um I just keep them in the kitchen so I can keep a really close eye on them I hate when you forget something's there and you just go into the shed and it's just all rotted and 
Oh, the waste, I know. And you just, it's the guilt, isn't it? You're like, oh no, you know, I, can't, I could have had made lovely curry with that. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what, I, what I tend to do is just pick what's there and then work out a meal from it. So things like at the moment, I'm still picking loads of wild garlic. And the, um, I've, last year, I really, I, I have to say, I came up with a very good recipe <laughs> with wild garlic. Just really simple, like a tagliatelle pasta with wild garlic, mushroom, and, and then option of adding... Um, smoked salmon as well and it's so good with just a bit of pepper on it oh so good so I think that's what I tend to do is just think of a recipe based on what's in season um, and then know how useful things like aubergines I find really useful to cook with Um, I mean there are some vegetables that are really good to grow and I would say that perennial veg comes into this actually I love growing the perennial veg like the yakons and the mashuas and these amazing tubers I have no idea how to cook them. I'm not a cook. I love cooking, but I need to learn how to cook these veg. Whereas things like squashes, aubergines, I know I always, if I don't have them, I go and buy them. So it's that. That's what I always make sure that I do grow um, because you know that you'll be able to turn them into anything, a soup, um, a pie, a pasta dish, a casserole, like whatever. And that's that's my kind of cooking. If it's versatile, I'm into it. <laughs> So what about your drinks? Because um, summer's just around the corner. Um, can you run us through one of those delicious summer quenching tipples um, and how we can make it at home? Yeah, I mean, I think elderflower cordial is the obvious one. That's in the book. But essentially cordial is just a syrup and you can do it with anything. So it works really well with fruits as well. So um, you can have damson or, or um, elderberry, actually. Elderberries are hugely high in antioxidants. So when all these berries come into their season, like I was talking about with the bitters in the spring, in the autumn, all these berries come into their season just before the winter. And that's when we need to really build our immune system up. So if you um, if you make all these syrups with all these lovely berries, rose hips, hawthorns, um, blackthorns, damsons, plums, and elderberries, and it's exactly the same as elderflower cordial, uh, kind of, um, then you essentially you boil them all up Um, strain off all of the pith and the pulp and then you add as much sugar as weight of what you've got you can add less but it won't keep quite as long but if you add you know weigh what you've got and add the same amount of sugar you have a syrup that will keep all winter long and you can use it as a cough mixture or you can mix it with um, sparkling water or something and have that as a really nice drink um, but coming up for now I'd say definitely keep an eye out for the elderberries which uh, sorry elderflowers which are a little bit different you need to add citric acid and lemon to them let them soak for 24 hours but I actually usually leave mine for about two to three days strain it all off and then do the same and cook um, boil up that water that you so you cover the whole thing in water let it strain for, let it um, sit for a few days, strain off the water, keep that water, add sugar and citric acid and then boil that up. And that's elderflower cordial and it's so good. And if you have the lovely um, pink, the the the, um, the black lace elderflower um, trees, you get the pink flowers and that makes a really nice pink cordial as well. So that's nice. Oh, which is very impressive in the garden during a heat wave when when friends are coming over. Oh, I can always taste it now. Oh, love love a glass of that at the moment. Um, So uh, we know you love houseplants as well. We've spoken a little bit already about what you're growing indoors. And so 
What houseplant varieties do you love to grow and why are they important? Well, again, a lot of edibles, actually. I have I have a melon that a friend, her friend grew too many melons, so I've taken on one of her melon seedlings and I'm going to try and grow it in a window. <laughs> I don't know how that will do. Um, but I've got lemongrass, I've got um, gingers, I've got turmerics. Um, I usually grow chilies um, and aubergines indoors as well. Last year I had a really cool Malabar spinach that just got huge and jungly. So lots of edibles if I can. But also... Um, Things like um, Monstera um, Adansonii is really lovely. They're really easy. I quite like hanging things. I quite like a bit of macrame. <laughs> lovely, lovely. <laughs> no, I have it on the patio as well. I really like taking that outdoors as well. It's cool, isn't it? I, and I ha- I'm also quite into a shelf. I never realised this about myself, but I quite like a shelf or like a little set of shelves attached to the wall that I can keep my books on and then stick some houseplants in amongst it that'll all like hang down and jung- yeah, jungle some, if I'm draping. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I can picture it. Um, so, I mean, actually, this leads on nicely because it's something that you, if you're struggling with a busy life, actually, you know, tending to houseplants is something, you know, lovely, lovely thing to do for mindfulness. And um, so there's a huge, um, you know, desire to reconnect with nature with our busy lives. And more and more people are taking up small space gardening, keeping it simple with a pot on their balcony or even a shared public space through community gardening. What do you think makes a successful small space garden? Keeping it simple. I think I think trying to load loads and loads of different plants in is really really making a headache for yourself. Also, making sure that you are able to maintain it well, like you were saying about the house plants are great. And actually, a nice thing about them when you have a busy life is that they mostly tend to die from overwatering. So if you are away quite a lot, you'll find that you often will have healthier house plants than if you're there pouring water on them every day. Um, but yeah, I think keeping keeping it simple, lots of green. I know that flowers are really, really beautiful and we all love them. But I think if you have only a small space and and you have to really make it count, remembering to really keep a lot of greenery as part of that will make it feel calming. I tend to think, especially if it's just a pot and you've crammed in loads of different flowers, it can look a bit much and your eye doesn't quite find it restful. Whereas if you had something like a hebe um, or a little kind of... um, juniper or just something that's evergreen foliage or even if it was a herb or even like a lavender or something where you have a mass of of foliage but then some lovely flowers or a rosemary um so it can still be useful um but you have that focus and emphasis on green whenever I have you know I I haven't really had my own gardens I've worked for a lot of clients and and like I said community gardens and stuff so I always have to do it for other people but whenever I've had little spaces in little rented houses or on my allotment it's my first chance to experiment with my own aesthetic um which I think a lot of people have when they're probably my age and they get their first homes and you know uh and I have discovered about myself that I always go heavy on green and I love that. Different textures of leaf, um, big kind of glossy leaves and then tiny little delicate leaves and then kind of the rougher furry leaves. And, you know, the whole gambit makes for a really interesting um, design and yet a really harmonious space because you've not got jarring colours. You've got like colours that flow in from a silvery kind of green to a deep foresty green to a bright lime green um, and different heights and that whole move through. And I, so I think if you have limited space, 
focusing on green is a really good place to start and then add little hints of colour uh, as and when you want them. So it's, it's calming, but then it's kind of those layers of layering the textures and adding interest, but all in all, just a very calming vista to look at. Um, so if our listeners are looking to design their garden with plant-based living in mind, um, from the drinks to the natural dyes, what considerations should they make? Um, I think they should make the consideration of how much time they have to dedicate to this. Uh, not beating yourself up if you're not able to get to it one year. I mean, that's the nice thing about perennials, actually, is they're easier than annual veg, particularly. You don't have to sow seeds, prick it out, pot it on, keep it watered, start feeding it as soon as it's flowering and all of that stuff that you have to do with annuals. You just stick them in the ground and they usually just go and that's it. Um, But yeah, I think time consideration is really important. Don't try and do everything at once. Um, It's lovely to do these things. And the whole joy for me of doing these things is the seasonality. So in the autumn, um, I luckily have a dog who's asleep next to me now. <laughs> oh, we're very good. I haven't heard he or she at all. <laughs> like, oh, I'm surprised you couldn't hear him snoring a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. Look at the time. <laughs> um, he's now looking at me very disapprovingly. Um, but yeah, so last autumn, I'd, I'd, after work, I'd take him for a walk um, up in the fields around where I live and just pick hawthorns and sloes and then come home and, and make syrup. And for me, that's really relaxing. That's actually that kind of living seasonally and having that mindfulness and being aware that like, you know, that the year's coming to a close, seeing the sunset slightly earlier every evening and all that stuff. And and that's really great. I think, I think that's the connection that we're all looking for is living seasonally. So with that in mind, don't try and start thinking about how you're going to make your syrup or whatever in the spring, just be there in that moment in the autumn when it's the right time. I think that's a really good way for people not to feel overwhelmed. And also remember, it takes an awfully long time to incorporate these things into our lives. You know, we've we've spent probably centuries actually trying to live outside of nature and to sort of remember how to be a part of it. It's going to take us a bit of a while. And even just building a garden takes a real long while. Um, my allotment that I had back in Kent when I was there for a couple of years, um, that I was sort of coming into my third year and I was for the first time beginning to feel like I'd started to get on top of it. It takes a long time to build these spaces and grow plants um, in a way that you want to. And if you put yourself under too much pressure to succeed straight off, you, you'll just be stressed and that will defeat the whole object. Well, that's it. If you're always thinking about, you know, oh, well, I should be planting this now because I want this in three months and I want this in six months and and it starts to become something that induces anxiety, then it really is, you know, defeating the object, like you say. So, um, so on the other end of the scale, we know some gardeners lean towards a real design-led hard landscaping, the paving, the gravel, the walls, the fake turf. Um, as you said, fewer actual plants, you know. So what are the best alternatives for incorporating structure into the garden or an outdoor space but of course avoiding those 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 really hard traditional hard landscaping yeah I actually think this is a really interesting question because it's something that loads of people ask me um especially people people my own age who have got their first gardens and want to have a wildlife friendly garden that is also nice looking 
I mean, firstly, I guess it depends what your idea of nice is. I quite like wild spaces, so that's good for me. But I totally get that there are loads of people who want to have a structured, designed, room-like space, um, but also want it to be sustainable and wildlife-friendly. So I would say it's actually really exciting that every single structure, every single feature that you put in your garden, if you if you design it carefully and build it with considerate methods can also be a wildlife space. So I've seen beautiful um, walls built, like circles, perfect circles. I think that's the thing, geometric shapes that edge a little patch of wilderness suddenly make that little patch of wilderness like, a, like really intentional. Um, so like lovely circles of walls that are built out of diagonal slates just look stunning. No mortar, like a dry stone wall, really. A dry stone wall is a great habitat for insects, even tiny little mammals. Um, lizards often will be in them or, and, and bask on them um, as the day warms up. Um, so just using a dry stone wall rather than a mortared wall is a huge thing. Um, and if you're building a, a patio, you still can build a patio, but maybe just don't use cement to build that patio, but just compact some hardcore, lay a bit of sand and put your blocks on there. That's how we used to build them. It's only recently we've started putting loads of cement on everything. Um, and if you do it like that, you'll have a permeable um, surface that the rain won't just sit on and you won't end up having floods and contributing to that. Um hedges rather than fences but if you want fences um maybe have insect habitat on those fences or bird boxes on those fences maybe grow some climbers up the fences as well um and i think again going heavy on the green um if you want to keep it really wildlife friendly but simple um emphasis on green plants and then they don't feel cottage gardeny and cluttered it feels contemporary and neat and you can even clip them into nice shapes if you want to um, and then in amongst them maybe just adding flowers every month so every month go down to the garden center pick something that's in flower with an open um, accessible nectar and pollen for plants so a single flower um, and um, buy that and have just that and then for 12 months of the year, you will have some flowers um, and that's enough, you know, even if you're just providing a little bit. Like I said, water as well, that can look so contemporary um, and that will provide loads of, of drink and habitat for loads of different species. So I think there is, there isn't necessarily a compromise between wildlife friendly and beautiful, but you have to think really cleverly about it. And that's kind of a really fun design challenge. I like that. It can be some of the most interesting gardens that have been really cleverly put together to, to provide habitat and also beauty. So let's see, there are those alternatives out there and and often harking back to those really, you know, um, you know, 100, 200 years ago, the traditional ways of doing things. And it's the perfect kind of way to, you know, add a, a wild element to a contemporary garden and about marrying them together. Um, so talk to us about no chemical gardening. So we know there's a huge movement away from the traditional ideas and ways of achieving productive plants. But in practice, what do you do to achieve those bold blooms and that bump, bumper crop, the no chemical way? Um, manure, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, you can get you can get all kinds of manure. You can get chicken manure. Um, you can get obviously 
cow manure is really great for heavy feeders uh like things like roses i really really appreciate a bit of a mulch of cow manure horse manure as long as it's well rotted the i think the only the only manure that doesn't need to rot is alpaca i believe okay top tip there someone did mention another one to me once i was like oh yeah no that's true maybe rabbit but anyway, if you get enough rabbit poos in your garden, you probably won't be getting great bumper crops anyway because the rabbits will be eating them all. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that so that's one way of doing it. If you're if you're vegan and you want to do vegan gardening, which is also a growing thing, um, then things like nettle and comfrey tea are really really great, and seaweed as well. Actually, if you live by the sea like I do, get permission, make sure you collect it from above the, the sea line, and at times when there's not lots of um, insects uh, during their life cycle and, and fish laying eggs and stuff around. But you have to look into that stuff. But um, essentially, comfrey and nettle should be all you need. Pick them, um, chop them up, stick them in water, leave them for a few months, stir them regularly, and you get a really rich feed that can be diluted um, in a watering can and and really, really helps. Um, things like pesticides, because that's really the most harmful chemicals, is poisons that we put down uh, I mean, things like rats, you know, if we compost, which lots of us do, we tend to get rats. Even if you feed the birds, you tend to get rats and they build up to a certain level and then someone will put rat poison out and that rat poison will probably go into the local uh, birds of prey who will, you know, feed on the rats or, you know, it, it, it goes down all into the water stream. You know, that's it. If you're down by the water, you know, where, where we are, it's, it's the water. And like you say, they take it off with them, don't they? And yeah, it's really, it's really has a far-reaching impact. And for what, just so we don't have to look at rats? Well, if you don't want to look at rats, put the bird feeder further down the garden. I know that it's nice to see the birds, but it, the, the rats will always be there anyway. It's just that sometimes you'll see them. Um, I, so I think it's a really tricky one. Um, but I I firmly believe that... Um, that putting down chemicals to poison certain species that we don't want, whether it's slugs or rats or aphids, whatever it may be, there are better ways. You can use things like nematodes. You can use physical barriers to keep things off. You can buy in larvae of things like lacewings and ladybirds. Um, but you can also grow loads of ground cover that will that will house beetles. And beetles eat loads of insects. So there's lots that you can do. And if you want to spray something on your hostas, if they're getting eaten by slugs or something like that, cook up a garlic uh, spray just with a couple of bulbs of garlic, cook it in a couple of pints of water until it really reduces. And then you can dilute that and spray that on the foliage and obviously re-spray it if it's rained because that will wash it off. But that tends to keep a lot of um, pests off the foliage of, of prized plants. So there are loads of alternative ways than using poison, which I think, I think if there was a rebranding of pesticide and it was actually called poison, people might rethink and go like, oh yeah, maybe that's not great for spraying on my vegetables that I'm then going to eat. And what about companion planting? So please, can you tell us about, you know, the companion planting? You know, what is it? Why do we do it? And and how easy is it? How do I do it tomorrow? <laughs> well, it can be really complicated. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and the more you look into it, the more you're like, oh God, so that needs to go with that. And that needs to go with that. Oh, but I put that with that. And and I don't want to grow that, and I do want to grow this, but I don't want that, and I don't like the look of that one. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it can also be um, really simple. I, I think at its most simple, think of it as planting flowers that will bring in pollinators 
next to your vegetables that need pollinating. That's literally its most simple. So um, you can use things like calendula, that's really common. Um, Nigella is great as a companion plant because it's also got edible seeds, which are delicious. Um, Borage is a really lovely one, absolutely teeming with... um, with insects and you can also eat those flowers too uh, although obviously then the insects won't come in as much if you eat all the flowers um so that is a really simple way of doing it but if you want to go a little more complicated you can start thinking of things like growing uh tadgetes, um by crops that you don't want the slugs eating because they'll eat the tadgetes instead or the aphids will go to the tadgetes instead nasturtiums are also another really good thing to grow around the edges of plants uh, for that reason and they are delicious <laughs> yummy and they look so beautiful I know I'm, I'm that's one of the ones I'm most excited for this season really? I'm like you know yeah I really am I just it's, it's on my kind of hit list for a while and I've got myself a couple of different varieties and so I'm just thinking like, something's got to take and if the pigeons could just stay off of my patch for a bit <laughs> <laughs> well apparently I have heard that if you put if you put a really good thick um surround of um companion plants around the edges of your vegetables the pigeons stay off um apparently they often find their food from walking around rather than from flying over the top so if they walk and they bash into a load of flowers that they don't eat then they'll walk somewhere else and it may be that just behind it you've got all your best brassicas and they won't notice a little mini pigeon fence i'm going to do that (laughs) yeah exactly so it, it is it is a really good thing to do, and but it can get really, really complicated with like different veg that go together. And if you, if you do want to go into it down that route, then think about different plant families. So always think about things like the legumes, fixed nitrogen in the soil. So that's things like your peas and your beans um, and your brassicas take a lot of nitrogen from the soil. So kale, broccoli, cauliflower, things like that. So if you plant the two different families together then you're having one thing that eats lots and one thing that gives lots of food. So that's a kind of nice way. But the the, the really um, common one is the three sisters, which is a Indigenous American method where you grow um, sweet corn um, all together. Uh, a patch of sweet corn, which is usually in a block because it's wind pollinated, so it needs to be planted, not in a line, but in a big block. Uh, up your sweet corn, you grow your climbing beans, And then those beans fix the nitrogen in the soil and the sweet corn is quite a hungry feeder as well. So that's good. And then over the ground in between the sweet corn, you grow your pumpkins or your squashes. And those big leaves of the pumpkins and squashes act like a mulch to keep the moisture in the ground. Um, And they're all in different families. So the sweet corn is a grass, the, um, the bean is a legume and the squash is a cucurbit. And they all take different um, nutrients. So they can all grow really happily together and they all serve a function within that system. That's a really nice one to do if you want to kind of experiment with companion planting and, and, and try something traditional. And and also space saving again. So that if you have got a small patch or you want to do it in a raised container or, or any container, it's one of those that you could get, you know, three things in, in one. It will look amazing by the sounds of things as well. So and and of course you've got that 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 harvest as well. And what about weeds? So, you know, leaving them to do their thing, what's the benefit? Should we all start leaving our weeds? Not necessarily. Um I think work out for your own self what is a weed and what is not a weed because I think 
a lot of wildflowers are, are thought of as weeds. I know a lot, I've worked in quite a lot of clients' gardens where they want me to turn it into wildflower meadow and they'll be like, oh, I've tried turning this into wildflower meadow. All that comes up is nettles. And you're like, well, they are a wildflower. <laughs> and they're obviously really, really happy in this meadow. So this is a this is your wildflower meadow. Um, but things like nettles are delicious. They're really high in nutrient. You can eat the um, you can eat the leaves in the spring you can eat the seeds in the autumn um and like i said you can use the foliage to make a, a feed for your for your plants so um i would always keep some nettles they're also fantastically good for wildlife butterflies in particular famously um lay their eggs on nettles um but things like I also mentioned chickweed, there are a lot of wildflowers that are actually really um, useful herbs. I have a really lovely book that I always refer to called Hedgerow Medicine, and it's all about native plants and what what they're good for and what they've traditionally been used for and which parts you use and when you harvest them and stuff. That's a really good book to refer to if you want to, if you're trying to go through and go, right, I'll let you stay and no, you're definitely coming out. So I think that's it. It's classifying what you think is a weed and then totally remove the ones you don't want in your garden. You know, even dandelions are pretty useful. You can make them into dandelion honey or you can make them into coffee, but you also may not want them. So get rid of them if you don't want them. It's fine to to get rid of what you don't want. Um, And I tend to go with mulching as the best way of keeping weeds down. Um, It really works quite well. Um, You can get straw mulches now as well, which work really well. They're quite pricey, um, but they work really, really well for keeping... I mean, I I was working in a wall garden last year where they had used a straw mulch on half and not on the other half. It was such a big difference. Oh, it's a good experiment. Yeah, I think they didn't do it intentionally. They did it because they ran out of money. <laughs> but well, we can all relate to that, can't yeah, we? <laughs> completely. But it was it was pretty interesting. So that now this year they're putting on um, the half that they didn't have the money to do last year. But you know, but just a mulch of compost is a really really good way of keeping weeds down, especially annual seed weeds. And you can get really. Um, really good like local council waste compost now which is free all you do is you pay for the delivery and then that works really well as a mulch so if you're an allotment here you can arrange for your allotment to have a big delivery of it and then everyone can help themselves um or you can have it in your own garden if you have a big garden and you want to just mulch the whole thing but I think that's probably the best way of getting rid of weeds and then obviously just digging them out um where they come uh if they're a bit of a problem um, I, I had a huge problem with horsetail on my allotment back in Kent. And that was a real, that was a real, it was actually really demoralizing because as soon as you thought you'd cleared it, you'd come back and you'd sown loads of seeds, but nothing had germinated, but you had a whole field full of horsetail again. Um, but the only thing I found that kind of got rid of that was just out competing it with other plants. So in my herb garden where I had big rosemaries and I had an artichoke and hyssops and lovage and lots of big plants uh the horsetail grew back so spindly so it obviously doesn't compete hugely well so I think if you're struggling with something really really problematic like horsetail that might be the best option just fill it with things you do want and hope that they outcompete the weeds that's it and you're keen to encourage all of us to avoid buying in lots of plants for our beds our pots our gardens so what are your go-tos for easy foolproof propagating and what are the economical choices out there when we're next in the garden centers yeah i mean i think i think i i don't want to discourage people from buying plants i just want everyone to think about 
where those plants have come from. Because uh, the plant trade has historically been really odd. There are a lot of, I've heard stories of growers in the UK who grow their plants, but it's actually cheaper for them to send them over to another country for them to grow them on bigger. And then they buy them back or have them sent back on into the UK later in the year to, to sell them. And so plants going to have huge air miles behind them that we may not, or ship miles, which we now are discovering are, are pretty destructive to marine life as well. So um, it, it's just a case of, of buying plants from places that are local. I'm a huge supporter of little local nurseries. You get some of the best plants in little local nurseries. I spent last year ages hunting the internet for some mashua, which is a perennial nasturtium. You'd like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. <laughs> it's really beautiful as well. Um, Brilliant. And you can eat the roots. It's mainly used as a root crop. That's, so the, the tubers taste a bit like wasabi. Again, one of those things I haven't quite worked out how to cook, but I still find them really cool. Um, but I spent ages trying to find these tubers and I bought some and they were a bit ropey and I planted them and I got one very flimsy looking, sorry, shoot coming up. And so I kind of gave up on it. But then I went to this little local nursery and found um, five pots of mashua full of tuber rather than the single one tuber I'd been sent online that cost $5.99 or something. And these these were pot, little pots full of mashua with like two foot of growth above them and they were £5 each for a pot full. And, you know, that was just a complete surprise. And the guy had propagated them himself and he could tell me everything about how I should propagate them, how to treat them here locally to me where luckily it's quite mild so I don't need to bring them in in the winter. And that, that's what I'm a really big advocate of, is just going to your local nurseries, asking them how they've grown things and, and getting things that you know how they've been grown. But if you do want to propagate, then it's a, I warn you, it's a very addictive thing to do. Just to, I, I, I realise I just, I just produce plants wherever I go. I'll sort of see if I'm weeding and I'll be like, oh, that's a nice little verbena or whatever, something that seeds itself everywhere and just dig it up and stick it in a pot or take a cutting or if something snaps off, just, you know, cut a bit off at, just below the node and stick it in some water and see if it puts on roots. And if it does, just stick it in a pot. And, you know, there's so many ways of propagating and um, whole books you can buy just about propagation. Um, my book, I, I want, you know, with everything, you want to go into way more detail, but, you know, I, I've covered the basics of propagation, um, but I just love it. There's something so satisfying about creating a new life force um, from something that you already had or you found lying around or was going to get put in the skip or whatever. Also, if you're propagating your own plants, you can stick a little honesty box outside the front of your house, sell the free plants that you've propagated, save up the money that you get, and then go to a garden centre and spend that money on something new. What about the cut flower vase? So, you know, you're your cut flower grower as well. So what do you love to grow for the vase? I, again, am all about the perennials. I love bulbs. I've always loved bulbs. I think it's because when I was first an apprentice, I started in November... Uh, in a little garden back in Kent called the Salutation. It was a Lutchins garden, but they never proved if it was a Jekyll garden. They, they didn't ever know. Um, but my first winter, we planted 50,000 bulbs. 50,000. <laughs> wow. I think the last ones, we, uh, they can, we can say it now. It's long enough ago. We just dug a big trench and stuck all of them in it. <laughs> and it was the most beautiful part of the garden in the spring. It was just like, <laughs> oh, why didn't we do that with all the bulbs? Um, but um, yeah, so 
50,000 bulbs. It was a cold, cold winter. And I, and I know that sounds like a really horrible, brutal uh, thing to do. But actually, I loved I, I, I loved the magic of it. It's like burying treasure. You forget where you've put it. You plant other things over the top of it. And then in the spring, they begin to come up and you're like, oh yeah, you, I remember you. And and then the flowers are so bright and colourful. So th- these are the tulips. This is Queen of Night, which I planted last autumn. I've got some alliums um, just coming up there too. And I've got a sprig of rosemary in there, um, which I... Oh, beautiful. That's a great idea. So a, a real sort of structural piece of rosemary in the middle. And yeah. Then oh, what a lovely idea. And, and actually, those tulips, gorgeous, aren't they? They're, they're so deep. I always struggle to actually pick things. I'm the same with veg. I talk the talk, but then actually, I grow these beautiful veg on my allotment, and I'm just like, I'm not picking you. You're too beautiful. <laughs> and so I let it all stay there until it goes to seed. It's terrible. And then I'll eat it when it's a bit bitter because it's gone to seed. <laughs> I was in a garden in Oxfordshire last week and a kitchen garden and the purple sprouting broccoli was flowering and it's exactly that. I was like, oh my gosh. They're like, no, we're going to lopping them off and it's on our job list this morning. I'm like, no, 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 look how beautiful they are. I know. You you can put them in a vase. It's so gorgeous. Beautiful yellow flowers. Have you ever seen chicory flowering? Chicory flat, like... If you leave it for a second year, chicory gets about two metres tall with these incredible blue flowers. It's stunning. Um, but yeah, no, so bulbs is definitely a must for me for, for cut flowers. And then and then loads of perennial things. So I have um, nepeta, the cat mint, loads of that is really great. Loads of verbena bonariensis, that's really fantastic. Um, and seeds itself everywhere, so free plants. Um, I have grasses. I, ha- I, I used to work in an ornamental grass nursery that was also a community garden and market garden just up the road from me here um, in Devon. And so I have a real love for ornamental grasses and um, and a nice place I know where I can buy them locally. <laughs> so um, I've got quite a few ornamental grasses. Um, I've got the um, Calamagrostis brachytrica. I think that's how you say it. Um that's really lovely. Uh, but also miscanthus, uh, penstemons, um, loads of different grasses that make lovely cut flowers. Um, lavender, really, really handy for, for cut flowers, or you can cut them and dry them and use them medicinally, infuse them in oil and all those things I was talking about earlier. Um, Rubecchia is great. Um, the perennial Rubecchia really like that. So basically, it's a really small part of my allotment, the cut flower section. So I really cram it with as much as I can. Um, Nautia Macedonica, Cephalaria. Um, so yeah, it's just sort of really crammed and really um, a bit forgotten. It's not something I spend all my energy on. It's, it's much more like a cottage garden, really, full of perennials and bulbs. And then I just take what I want when I'm there um, and don't put too much pressure on it to perform really, really highly. So it's not annual cut flowers at all. But but ha- what a lovely thing to be able to, you know, add a, a couple of stems to the basket when you're going and, and harvesting something as well. And then it's just, it's the whole process of it, isn't it? The calming you know, aspect when you get home and, you know, not straight into the kitchen, actually you stop and put a couple of stems in a vase. And, and I'm definitely stealing the rosemary idea there. Isn't <laughs> yeah, it? it's good. And it's nice so on an allotment. People always compliment your allotment when you have lots of cut flowers there, yes. um, especially when they're at the front edge. Um, it just, it's just a little section and, and because it looks cottage gardeny and people, I'm on the walk past to the compost pile <laughs> so everyone walks past my allotment and it's one of the nice things in the summer they'll go oh your allotment looks so pretty and you're like oh 
it's a lovely conversation starter isn't it and of course it's Chelsea season and we have your wonderful sustainable post-industrial garden coming up um, at Gardeners World Live so what are you enjoying putting your gardening hours into right now any other exciting projects coming up that you can tell us about yeah I'm actually I've just started a new job this spring as a head gardener Wonderful. Congratulations. Can you tell us all about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a place called Sharpham and it's um it's not open to the public sadly. It's a charity, but it but it runs kind of like retreats and like it's all about mental health and reconnecting with nature and stuff like that. Um and it's a uh, it's it's big. But I'm I'm only there for a year. It's maternity cover, so I'm covering for my friend who's who's going on maternity leave. Um and it's all productive veg cut flowers um, and then a wider estate with ornamental borders and then a woodland garden and then two really old orchards as well so it's quite a lot to manage me and an assistant so uh, that's what I'm doing with most of my time trying desperately to fit in filming and these sorts of things around it Um, from from August I'm just going to be fully in the garden hopefully that will have been enough enough tv stuff to see me through till next spring and then and then who knows but yeah it's really exciting Oh, wonderful. No, it sounds like an amazing space, though. You know, all of those different ways of, you know, the, the ideas that you'll, you know, be inspired and all that come out, come out of this next year, I'm sure will be, you know, just, you know, amazing, really. Um, so we, we have spoken a little bit on wildlife and we, you know, we know wildlife in the garden really matters. And so what's your advice for creating a rich, diverse haven and a healthy ecosystem? I know we spoke about the, the living walls and, and putting in that instead of hard landscaping. And we kind of touched on maybe having a a, a, a pot uh, you know a small pond you know it doesn't have to be a, a huge pond so what what can people do if maybe you know space is you know restricted slightly I think yeah it, all those things that we spoke about a pond is really essential um even if it's small make sure there's a little way for animals to climb out of it again safely if you possibly can have a little shallow end where people where people <laughs> they are people animals can sort of bask and be in the warmth shallower waters and then deeper water with some greenery in it as well about a third roughly speaking of um of the water should be covered with green uh to allow a little bit of reflection still so that animals and insects can see that it's water but also to give shade under the water for frogs and uh, newts and fish if you have fish although if you have a wildlife pond you may want to think twice about having fish because they will tend to eat any other species that's living in there <laughs> um and then I, I think another thing that we haven't really spoken about is is not digging um to think about your ecosystem in your garden is not just what you see above the ground but what you see below the ground and you can dig some areas well like you were saying about we all get taught and conditioned to spray our gardens with pesticide and I was certainly conditioned to dig it's a really hard thing to overcome but um, it's easier when you do because you don't have to dig. <laughs> um, but also it's really, really um, beneficial to the soil, to the to the, the structure of your soil and also to the wildlife that live within your soil. And there are loads of, of grubs. You know, we, we tend to find maggots and grubs in the soil and, and a lot of people tend to just kill them, but not realising that a lot of them will turn into beetles that will eat your aphids or even into caterpillars and butterflies. Or, you know, there are a lot of really unusual and a, a vast array of even unknown things that live in your soil. So try not to walk on your soil too much, 
so that you don't compact it and then have to dig it means you don't have to dig it that much and, and you'll end up with a really healthy soil ecosystem. So I think they're two things that would be really, really good to mention. And I suppose as well, we we spoke about, you know, the rats before and learning to live with things living side by side. And it's a lot about acceptance, isn't it, in the natural world? And, and you know, not just trying to, you know, um, eradicate everything entirely. Yeah, I think we think about often what things, what things, what function do, do animals or insects have in the ecosystem? You know, I get asked that a lot, like, well, what does that do? What does a pigeon do? What does it really do? And I found myself thinking, well, what does a robin do? What does a blue tit do? I can't really think of anything more useful than what a pigeon does. It's just that we choose to not like pigeons and we really want to encourage blue tits. So why is that? Why have we decided that one species is okay and the other one isn't? You know, we should just learn to accept everything and if we have enough of everything then we have a balance of everything and yeah like maybe if you're getting too many rats just stop feeding the birds for a while you know if if you find that you're getting overrun or you know maybe you don't have your pile of of twigs and stones right by your front door so you don't have loads of spiders crawling into your house I get that like that's fine don't make it so comfy for them and invite them in (laughs) but you can't get rid of all spiders you wouldn't want to. They, they do such good things, don't they, in the garden? They really do. I mean, wasps is the classic. Everyone always goes, well, what about wasps? They're rubbish. And it's like, well, the two species in the UK that sting you are a bit annoying, but they're also incredibly useful decomposers of, of, of everything. Um, but also, um, we have 7,000 plus species of wasp in the UK alone, and that includes gall wasps and parasitic wasps, um, and lots of them do pollination. Um, I mean, they're, they're really important. Flies as well, huge pollinators. When we think of pollinators, everyone thinks of bees. Flies and hoverflies pollinate so many plants. So we can't pick and choose. We either accept wildlife or we don't. And I and I really feel encouraged that the more and more people I speak to, the more I think we are all beginning to get to the accept stage. Your modern style of gardening is all about creating a usable and social space. So how are you really looking forward to switching off and enjoying your garden this summer? Now you've got a new job, Francis. So now I'm thinking, is she going to switch off? But when you can in your garden, what what do you do to just to actually be like, I'm having a bit of me time in my garden now. This is what I'm going to do. Well, I, I definitely don't think I'll be switching off when I'm at work because there'll always be so much to do, an ever-growing list of things to do. But on my allotment is where I switch off. I I love it there. I mean, sometimes it's a bind. You know, I this week I had one day off and I had to go down the allotment and water because I hadn't watered yet. I had to weed. Last time I went down there, I saw it needed strimming down the sides because the grass was growing really long. And I don't know that the neighbours will start to complain if I don't get it strimmed. Um, So I went down there, I have to say, slightly begrudgingly. And as soon as I was there, I was just, you know, it's warm. I can hear there's a little little stream that runs along the sides. I can hear that going. Um, I was just tying in my fruit. I have a loganberry and a taberry and a Japanese wineberry that have all put on loads of growth. So I'm tying all of them in and just seeing the flower buds coming and just imagining what the delicious fruit is going to be like and weeding. And I got loads of manure and I I know it's really late to be mulching, but I just decided to mulch because it was all there and I haven't sown my annual veg in those beds yet. And I was just 
just the sitting on the floor and just looking around and being like, wow, you know, just being. I just, that, I don't know, just being in that space just is my unwinding. I have got a little bench there, which I put in based on a bench that Adam Frost made for me on my old allotment. It's not nearly as good and the legs are really (laughs) wobbly. (laughs) But I did put that there and I find that I never really sit on it. I always just sit on the floor and and just when I'm in amongst the plants and see the light shining through the leaves and the flowers and I can hear the bees at head height buzzing around me. And yeah, I just, that is how I switch off. Whatever I need to do, getting mucky, harvesting, like you were saying, harvesting a load of rhubarb and then thinking, well, what am I going to cook with this then? You know, it's just a, it's just a lovely space to be in. So yeah, um, unfortunately, because it's an allotment, it wouldn't be very sociable for me to sit there with a beer. <laughs> But I think that's oh, what a lot of people do. I think in people's gardens, that's their way of switching off, isn't it? End of an evening, sunset, sit with a nice gin and tonic or a glass of wine. But I don't. I just sit there and sit there and just be at one with it all. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.